everybody. Hello, others not covered in the previous statement. It's then again. <laughs> With Ken. And Glenn. That's both of us. I wonder if today. we're, are we included in the other? Uh, yeah, Let's I think Let's other so. each other today. Okay, well, exactly. Let's oh. humor, let's humor <laughs> each other to, the audience always humors us by listening. <laughs> they do. Oh, you know, there was nothing humorous, though, about the deerskin trade oh in the dear. 18th century. Oh, dear. Ha, <laughs> ha. See, we're oh just dears. loading you up with puns right off the top of the show. Well, it's no skin off my back. Woo! So anyway, there's this place called North America. And originally, people lived there. And then different other people came there. And we call this European Settlement of the Americas coming into contact with Native Americans. And as we've discussed in a previous podcast, didn't go well as far well, as the Mississippian cultures themselves were concerned. Went, went terribly for the Native Americans. Exactly. What it was, was the, great for the Europeans. Oh, they loved it. Well, not the Spaniards. They didn't do so well here in the Southeast. But that is kind of our topic today, the, the, the greater Southeast area and later contact after this initial wave of, uh, of pandemic because it affected an entire continent, ultimately. But in this vacuum of the Mississippian cultures, you've got Creek and Choctaw uh, coalescing. You've got Cherokee moving in from uh, the Great Lakes area. Or did they? That's another episode. <laughs> That's a different episode. <laughs> but the best linguistic evidence suggests yes. Anyway, they're here. So when the English start settling Georgia, and we're going to say English, even though there are, of course, other ethnic groups. It's a British enterprise. Right. I love that term, British enterprise. Uh, you should name a ship after What if that. the USS Enterprise had been British? <laughs> it would be Star Wars. <laughs> anyway. No. It would be the Death Star. No. We're getting further afield with each passing syllable. So as the English uh, settlers come in, they, they, of course, come into contact, especially here in the colony of Georgia, with both Creek and Cherokee peoples. And there's interchange. It's not all bad. There is commerce, because commerce is, after all, the lifeblood of civic virtue and development, according to mercantile systems of the the, 18th century. And there had been commerce amongst the native tribes before, during the Mississippian culture, after the uh, apocalyptic uh, spread of European disease. Mm -hmm. They had re-coalesced into these different tribes Mm -hmm. in the southeast and in what became Georgia and the Carolinas. So they they knew how trade worked. They, they did, they, they, absolutely. They had things, other people wanted them, the other people had things they want, so they traded. And perhaps, you know, perhaps the these new trade networks weren't as well developed as they were, say, during the Mississippian times, but that's to be expected. Yeah. But, but they are still, nevertheless, developed. They have trade networks. They are fairly far-flung. You know, the societies are pretty sophisticated, even if it's using Stone Age technology or pre-iron technology, as another good way to say it. I read that somewhere recently. I was like, yeah, that's kind of good. So when they come into contact with the English settlers, the English settlers have goods that are iron, that are things like, you know, brass kettles and brass cook pots. And and, and, and iron arrowheads that and, eventually turn into you know, muskets, muskets, gunpowder weapons. Exactly. So there's there's a demand for goods, and that's how trade starts. Uh, now, of course, the problem is, you know, what do the Native Americans have that the English can benefit from? What beans? do they want? Beans? Corn? Corn bean no. Corn? Not really. Not really. They're getting that anyway. You know, the obvious answer that we get from kids when we do our programs here a lot is land. Absolutely. <laughs> but they're not trading that for... for, for, not, for not at first. Not, not that they, not, not not that they know. Plan. 
But they do have an abundant natural resource that they already hunt, and it's uh, here in the southeast, the white-tailed deer. So what springs up is what is now called the deerskin trade. Hey, it was called the deerskin trade then, too, as a matter of fact, because uh, that's literally what it was. And what do they use the deerskins for? The deerskin is unlike that in Europe. It can be prepared and tanned into something incredibly soft and it's supple. fantastic and, leather. And the European has, especially the British, with their you know industrial might that are yeah. making things, they're making gloves and belts and hats and clothing because deer skin is so soft and, and perfect that it creates this huge fashion-based Absolutely. boom in, in, on the European continent and in the British Isles. And in general, this is something uh, that I just read the other day in this excellent book that I'm holding up to the microphone. Wait, you can't see oh, it. Oh, I love that book. <laughs> it is. It's great. Deerskins and Duffels by Catherine Holland Brown. It is an excellent study of the deerskin trade. It, it focuses more on the creek in English, but it's got information about the Choctaw as well and the Cherokee. But she uh, uses really great primary source documentation. And one of the things that leads to this explosion in this demand for deerskin is right at the time that it's really getting cranked up in the, in the 1740s and 50s, there are three or four waves of cattle-borne viruses wiping out cattle herds in the continent and in England, does that sound familiar? Uh, mad cow sickness, uh, embargoes on imports of leathers, and <laughs> it happened then too. Wow. And so that is happening as this trade is being developed in the colonies, and it's a, a perfect storm in one sense and a perfect opportunity in another. This insatiable demand, now that this other supply of leather is cut off, here's a, a ready supply, and it's a better leather for a lot of the work that's going on, so there's a huge demand. So this you would think might put the Cherokee, Choctaw, and Creek in the driver's seat because they're they've got the they've got the goods that, that the English want, and and it does, and and that you know that's the important thing to remember is that these these native tribes, these nations have agency of their own. Mm-hmm. This is not totally partially, but it is not totally a story <laughs> of the Europeans coming in and saying you will do these things and we will dominate you. Yes, that sounds fine to us. These right. these native tribes have agency. They're playing off European powers against each other because exactly. the French, and to a lesser extent the Spanish, but especially the French are also trying. Well, the French have been major into the fur trade in the, in the north. That was and the it, whole point of New exactly, France. Exactly, and have expanded down the Mississippi into the Gulf Coast region. I mean, I don't know how many of our dear listeners realize it, but the French had outposts in what is now present-day Alabama, for God's sakes. Right. It was it was that close together, the competing English traders and French traders both saying, no, no, we've got the goods that you want, Choctaw and Creek and Cherokee, trade with us. And as you say, the Indians are very intelligent. They're like, well— the French say they'll give me this. What are you going to give me, English guy? Well, I'll give you this. And then he goes back, hey, Frenchie, English guy says they'll give me this. What are you going to top that offer with? Right. And so the native tribes begin to compete with each other. Yeah, no, they, that's a big part of it. They begin to compete with each other. They begin to have the European powers well, Glenn, compete and I, with each other. And let me jump in right there. It's it's They're competing each other economically in the way that they have always competed against each other in fighting over control of territory. Right. So the pre-existing military rivalries, def- and they had them, folks, definitely come into play. They definitely come into play. And when the trading begins, they're trading for, well, and continues, they're trading for goods that, in effect, make life easier. That's that's what Standard they're trading of living, for. yeah. They are trading brass kettles to replace their stone cookware. They're, repla- they're, they're trading for gunpowder weapons 
to replace bows and arrows. They're trading for manufactured cloth to replace the skins that right. they had previously used, that needles and thread. Right, iron uh, knives, iron, iron axes and, instead and, of stone. Exactly. So this, and because they have this convenient to lifestyle, but also technologically advanced trade goods, this starts to fundamentally alter the cultures of these southeastern native tribes. It's almost as though the material reality affects the they, development of the culture. They really do. <laughs> and, 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 you know, some people said, well, couldn't they see that this was going to create a dependence upon the trade with the, with the French and the, especially the British? And why didn't they just stop? Well, why don't you stop buying iPhones and ordering everything off of Amazon? Right. Stop driving cars on asphalt that's destro- literally destroying the planet. Well, we just know stop. it's bad. Do we stop? Nope. No, we don't. Because it's convenient and exactly. we're in a trap. We choose to keep going. Right. We don't have all this to say this is, this is not a new situation. But right, right. But it, but it has to do with agency and larger market-driven influences that we as individuals don't necessarily have control over. Right. We're just going with the flow, just as the native tribes did. And so to increase the amount of goods that you can receive, you, of course, have to increase the amount of goods that you are trading. You've got to which, increase production. And you have to remember that out of, I believe, Bronze Book has the, the exact number. We'll, we have to check it later. Mm-hmm. But in 1760-ish... They're taking out of Charleston Port alone about 500,000 deerskin per year. Per year. This is a huge trade. And, and, and that's just Charleston with the English exactly. trade. There's also the French trade. Exactly. You know, they're carrying not quite that, but a comparable amount. The Spanish is a lot lower, but all combined, you're talking about you know a million deerskin right. a year with all the combined European exports. Right, and by this point and continuing up until about... 1800, after the United States has achieved its independence, the deerskin trade begins to dwarf the previous like beaver fur skin trade that takes oh, place in yeah. the north, especially after the, the French are, are kicked out after the French and Indian War. So the deerskin trade becomes a major economic impetus, especially here in the southeast, especially in Georgia. As a matter of fact, the colonies, then later states, but especially during the colonial period, South Carolina gets really upset when Georgia's founded. <laughs> for so many reasons. For so many reasons. But the biggest reason is yeah. because they now have a royal factor who's going to start interfering with what had been, up to this point, exclusively a South Carolina-based trade exactly. with the natives. And when we or say, for our, for our listeners that don't know when Glenn said royal factor, that means a factor is an agent. Someone right. actually appointed, in this case because Georgia is a royal colony at this point, right. since the trustees have stepped aside well been kicked aside so there's a royal appointee that is in charge he is the factor or agent and so when they set up these trading posts we call them trading posts they call them factories i mean so you know there's many because the factory is where the factor operates and where he you know does his thing and you know we were speaking of volume of trade even though there is you know intense displeasure in south carolina about georgia entering into that trade Georgia and the Carolinas combined, north and south, are about 90% of the fur trade total in North America. I mean, that's how big it is. It's just huge. And where present day, well, actually not, yeah, around present, where present day Augusta is, um, the South Carolina had a trading factor station uh, called Savannah Town after the Savannah River, even though there's a Savannah, Georgia downstream. (laughs) That couldn't have been ever confusing. Uh, I'm going to Savannah. Which one? What do you mean? The one on the river. Wait, what? The one with town after. Well, they're both towns. <laughs> anyway, so when Oglethorpe, specifically Oglethorpe surveys the reaches of the Savannah River and sees the fall line, he says, hey, this is a great place. We're going to found a town here. It's going to be called Augusta. And they, right from the beginning, they know that's going to be a trading town. And 
deerskins and duffels, uh, they talk about just how rapidly Augusta yeah. grew. And not in the same way Savannah did, because, of course, there aren't merchant ships coming up and that sort of thing. But as far as the frontier trade, it boomed. There, there's there's 30 or 40 different factors there right. within 10 to 15 years. But, and South Carolina is not pleased, although some of their guys just go, okay, we're just going to cross the river and use our South Carolina license exactly, in Georgia. Exactly. And see, that's just it. You know, Not only, not only do the material <laughs> conditions tend to determine things, but geography is fate. <laughs> yeah. The fall line where Augusta was put yep. also happened to be right across one of the major trade routes that went from the Creek Nation to South Carolina. Yeah. Well, now Georgia controls can, that can, route. Can, can start... Can, can control it and start to intercept some of that trade and send it on down the river to Savannah, the the, the real Savannah, and, and and ship it out from there. So the it's so Savannah. the colonies are in competition with each other. The tribal nations are in competition with each other. But I want to know who speaks for the deer. <laughs> who does speak for the deer? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. And just like the Lorax speaks for the trees, Glenn and I will be the deer Lorax. So as you can imagine, with these huge numbers being slain, the deer population plummets. It plummets, and there's no end, though, to the hunting. There is massive overhunting, and by the time you get to the eve of the American War for Independence, I mean, it's, it's getting harder and harder for these Native Americans to get the quotas they need to get the goods they need, which is one of the things contributing them to getting into debt with the factors. And getting into bigger trouble with other tribes as they start to cross over respective to, hunting grounds. Exactly. And so the war sort of disrupts the trade and gives the deer a chance to rebound. But after the war, there has been such massive change with the European powers and their Native American allies, that the deer trade never really gets back to what it was. But as you say, it's, it certainly continues up into the early 19th century. Right. But that, but that peak is just before the War for Independence. Now, of course, we would be remiss if we did not mention, especially since Libba just gave us the five-minute symbol two minutes ago, uh, <laughs> that uh, in you know early days in the deerskin trade, uh, as the Native Americans are bringing in goods and things, uh, they noticed that the English have slaves. And I believe it's the creek that sort of spearhead this. I think that's what she says in Dishkins and Duffels. When they're the first to go, oh, you like slaves? We can get you slaves. Will that get more than a deerskin? Why, yes. Yes, it will. Well, then, then advance me a few guns. We're going raiding. And they, creek specifically, the Choctaw to a, to a lesser extent, also took part in this. But what is now the Florida Panhandle area, the creek just decimated the tribes down there raiding for the Native American slave trade. And this, especially in the early days, we're talking like 1700 to 1715, 1718, the slave trade that the Native Americans were bringing captured other Native Americans to the, the British to trade for slaves and these goods was huge. It was, yeah. as, it was as big as the deerskin trade. Exactly. And eventually the Native Americans began to realize that this was really screwing them over. And you get what's the Yamasee War, which is before Georgia is even founded. This is in mm-hmm. 1715 to, to 17. And the Yamasee basically go to war against the British powers to stop. There, it's a, As everything is, it's complicated. It's complicated. But they go to power, they, they go to war to stop the slave trade. And they more or less succeed because it becomes too bloody and violent for the British, and it's not profitable, so they stop. However, as you've listened, you've heard us use the words Cherokee and Creek and Choctaw and and even Chickasaw, which you've probably heard. How many of you ever heard of the Yamasee tribe? Exactly. 
Guess what happened? Huh. <laughs> Guess who was one of the victims of the slave raids? You know, who, yeah. whose population was decimated? As a matter of fact, I believe, is it is it not the, the Yamacraw were a cadet branch of the Yamasee? That's who Tomachichi right. met. When, you know, and, in and, and that's one reason, folks, why Tomachichi was like, yes, Oglethorpe, yes, here is land here on the Savannah Bluff. Yes, we welcome you. Protect us, by the way. Protect us. Protect us. And he did. And, and they did, yeah. But that just shows you, you know, if you think sophisticated, behind-the-closed-doors political intrigue is just a thing of European nations, the deerskin trade is a perfect example of how it affects everyone. As soon as making a lot of money enters the picture, oh, right. man, it's and, off to the races. And the thing is, you know, the, we'll, we'll leave it with this, but you have to remember the native tribes, they had agency. They were they, they were calling the shots. They were at the center of this struggle. They they are the ones who could manipulate the power, who could, who could make the alliances, and they were able to play these different powers off against each other, and that worked great until Till. there was only one power after 1783. Exactly. And even then, they were still able to use it a little bit, but that yeah. eventually led to their great demise during the Creek Civil War of 1813-14, which is another. a topic for another <laughs> podcast. Exactly. So until that great day... Yes. They're going to hear this before our, our thing? Okay, in that case, we're going to plug our little that's program. That's right. So if you want to learn more about the deerskin trade Come on Georgia, out to the Northeast Georgia History Center this Sunday, February 9th, from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. for Deerskin Wars. Bum, 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 bum. Wait, is that the right thing? That just don't even... <laughs> Then Again with Ken and Glenn is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. If you've enjoyed listening to Then Again with Ken and Glenn, please make sure that you subscribe and help us out by writing a review. To learn more about the Northeast Georgia History Center, visit www.negahc.org.